on today's episode. This common observation in PhD programs that one of the most consistent ways to really get a lot more work done on your PhD was either for you or your spouse to have a baby. It's called the baby paradox. Because what would happen is grad students have so much flexibility in their schedule. They're all over the place. They're context shifting or what have you. When their schedule suddenly gets much more tightened. So now we're talking, okay, the baby is taking its nap at this period. Or I have this two-hour window where there's a little bit of childcare. It focuses your efforts from when I work I'm working really intensely on what's most important. And even though you seem like you have much less total hours of work, I, paradoxically often these students end up getting much more productive work done on their dissertation mm-hmm. than before, and it gets done much faster. And there's, there's, it's a little bit facetious, but actually it, it happens all the time, and it's something that people talk about. And that's a lot of what's going on. You give yourself a lot of constraints. What happens is when it comes time to work, you work. Yeah. Lock in, focus. Welcome to the Modern Author Podcast. Your host, Eric Custer. If you're like me and struggling to manage your technology, to not be distracted by the reels and TikTok and all this stuff coming at you, you're in for a treat. My man Cal Newport is on with us today and we go deep in what it like means today to be a modern human trying to navigate our way through the distraction and the technology that invades our lives. Uh, Cal Newport is an amazing human, uh, the author of multiple books, Deep Work, So Good They Can't Ignore You, Digital Detox. Um, he's also a professor of computer science at Georgetown. That's where we first met. Um, but what I love about Cal is he's really one of those people who's pragmatic as all get out about it. And I think in particular for any of you who are out there creating things, you're building something, whether it's you're building and writing a book, whether you're trying to figure out how to you know, create something like an event or a YouTube channel, whatever it is, or you're building a company or heck, you're just trying to get your darn job done. Uh, Cal has some good insights in how to think about it. And what I love about it is it's this mix of practical and really pragmatic and science-driven. What's actually going on inside us? I found it helpful for me in particular as I think about what goes on in life, how to deal with the sort of the self-doubt and the issues of it, in particular, why we need to own our own destiny by thinking differently about how we work, what it looks like, and what the modern life will be. Um, Cal is a human who I think you'll learn a lot from. I enjoyed this conversation. Cal Newport, everyone, author of Deep Work, So Good They Can't Ignore You and a lot of other cool stuff. <laughs> Thanks, Cal. If you want to produce something with your brain, something that's non-trivial or complicated, by far the best way to do it is to give that unbroken attention for a long period of time. And by unbroken, I mean with no context shifts. And this is something that really we didn't understand in the world of work until more recently when we started paying attention to psychology and neuroscience research. But what we know now is that context shifts really has a negative ability focus. What I mean by context shift is, for example, let's say you're writing a chapter for your book, you're in Eric's class, you're working on your chapter, and you think you're single passing, right? You don't have other windows open. You're not on the phone while you're writing. You're just writing. And then you innocently glance down at your phone because there's a text message that popped up. You just want to see what it is. Then you come back to writing. Then maybe 10 minutes later, you just very quickly jump over to your email inbox because you're waiting for an email, see what's in there, and jump back to what you're doing. Now, we tend to tell ourselves, like, this is great. I'm not multitasking. I'm not looking at my phone all the time. 
while I'm writing. I don't have my email inbox open all the time while I'm writing, so this is good. But it's not because what we know is that there is a cost to switching your attention to that other context and back again. And it doesn't matter how long you spend looking at the new context, it's the switch that kills you. So when you glance at that phone and see this text thread and you can't really finish it right now or it makes you remember some of the things, you turn your attention back to the book, you're a worse writer for a long period of time. When you glance at that inbox and see all those emails, even if you only look at it for 20 seconds, you're going to be a worse writer for the next 10, 15, 20 minutes because your brain is now have a colliding context, a writing context, and what it just saw in the email and is trying to sort out what it's supposed to be doing. So deep work, the reason why it's a superpower in some sense is that it's not that you're boosting your ability, it's that you're avoiding all the things that drag down your ability that most other people suffer from. And so if you give something 90 minutes, let's say, of really hard attention with no context yet, you're going to feel like you're on some sort of major neurotropic drug that's giving you ultra <laughs> because you are actually using your brain at its highest capacity. So that's why I say deep work is like a superpower if doing cognitive work is at all important to you. Yeah. It's funny. It's, I'll tell you a quick anecdote that I think fits into this one is I, you and I both have kids, young kids, and I realized when I had kids, besides all the other stuff going on, it just it limited my time that I had to work during the day because my evenings, I couldn't have stuff spill over anymore. I really wanted to spend time with them. And so I started doing a bunch of research and I realized the easiest, simplest thing I could do right now was to cut out lunch. So I stopped eating lunch. That was my sort of thing right there. And what I realized to your very point about it is it wasn't just the fact that I was taking 30 minutes to go eat lunch. It was what I would call the shoulders of it. I would start thinking 35 minutes before about what it was. And I would start to say, oh, interesting. Like, where should I go? I would get distracted by thinking about lunch. Then I would go to do the lunch, which only is 30 minutes. But then afterwards, I'm like, get back to go organize and get stuff in that way. So what I started to realize is that just going and taking lunch for me was basically cutting out about 90 minutes to two hours of productivity, even if the lunch part of it was only 30 to 40 minutes. Yeah, there's this funny paradox I used to talk about when I did more lectures on academic productivity, but it was this common observation in PhD programs that one of the most consistent ways to really get a lot more work done on your PhD was either for you or your spouse to have a baby. It's called the baby paradox. Because what would happen is grad students have so much flexibility in their schedule. They're all over the place. They're context shifting or what have you. When their schedule suddenly gets much more tightened. So now we're talking, okay, the baby is taking its nap at this period. Or I have this two-hour window where there's a little bit of childcare. It focuses your efforts from when I work, I'm working really intensely on what's most important. And even though you seem like you have much less total hours of work, paradoxically often these students end up getting much more productive work done on their dissertation than before, and it gets done much faster. And there's a, there's, it's a little bit facetious, but actually it, it happens all the time, and it's something that people talk about. And that's a lot of what's going on. You give yourself a lot of constraints. What happens is when it comes time to work, you work. Yeah. Lock in, focus. I need to write this chapter, and I have, until that baby starts crying, <laughs> I'm going to try to fill every minute because that's the last time I have, and that works. So what I'm saying is to, to all of your listeners and students is you need to immediately have more kids. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I'm going to say, you were here first, ladies and gentlemen. Cal Newport lobbying for more procreation. That's what just was that's uh, my, that's my book writing advice. But it, I think it's a really good point, and I oftentimes will say the same thing that I think cons- lean into constraints rather than complaining about them. And for example, what I oftentimes will advise students and things like that is block off time. And don't think about the book at any other time except for that time you have blocked off on your calendar and just focus on at that point. Because again, it's this multitasking brain that causes problems. It's not that that you need more time. You just need 
less dedicated time to really succeed in some of these endeavors? Yeah, it's what professional writers do. Professional writers do two to three hours a day, usually first thing in the morning, usually in a place with zero distractions. This is like John Grisham in this outbuilding on his outbuilding on his property in which he never brought internet to. Hmm. And he goes out there, he writes in the morning, that's it. Like, this is how professional writers, he produced professional books. It's not like they're writing all day. It's not as if only I had more time, I could get books done. Professional writers aren't writing eight or nine hours a day. They can do two or three good hours, right? That's what it takes to do this at the very highest level. And so you're right. It all comes down to the persistent application of undistracted, intense cognitive effort. You just do it again and again. It's pretty simple, but it's hard in practice, easy to understand. But that's what it is when it comes down to the cognitive work. Again and again, intense focus in manageable lengths. So let's then, let's deconstruct that a little bit here. So now, Cal and Eric are teaching a book writing class. I've just, I've just brought you into my class with me. What do you advise someone who's attacking something substantive like that? How do you tell them to start to think about dividing up their time of the week? Let's just say that they need to spend three to five hours a week working on a project like this. How do you urge people to think about allocating that time, getting ready for that time, using that time? What would you give them the tactical advice to do? They need some sort of consistent scheduling strategy. This seems clear from my research on... Uh, proficient deep thinkers. Now, the strategies differ depending on what your situation is. But what doesn't differ is that people who are good at getting cognitive work done have some sort of strategy. There's a bunch of different common ones. One is same time, same days every week. That's the easiest one. These are my times for writing. If you need five hours a week, you should do it two mornings. Pick those mornings. Do it first thing when you get up. Just have it be a routine. There, that's fine. Other people do it different ways. There's a, a, an author, Neil, I think his last name is Neil Pasha, who wrote this book, The Happiness Equation. There's a new book out called You Are Awesome. Uh, I have another book literally on my, my desk right now. I mean, I'm forgetting his last name, so maybe say it correctly because I feel bad about it's it. It's P-A-S-R-I-C-H-A. Pashira? Pashira? Yeah. I heard him on an interview recently. What he does actually is he takes a day each week. So, so okay, I'm not going to think about my books or my podcast at all, except for, I think it's Fridays for him. And he calls it his untouchable day. Hmm. And he's disconnected the whole day, like from everyone, like even his wife can't reach him. And that's what, that's what he does. It's just like, I'll do one day a week. And it's, that's all I'm doing. That's all I'm doing the whole day. Other people, it's not, I'm doing an hour every morning. Other people, it's, I go on a retreat for three weeks and then I don't think about it at all for another couple months. I talk about the professor, Adam Grant, in my book, who will stack his teaching in one semester. And when he's in the teaching semester, he's Mr. Teacher. Mm-hmm. Students is what I'm doing. My door is open. I'm, I want to be Mr. Teacher. And when he's in the other semester in the summer, he's Mr. Researcher. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you can't reach him. So th- these are all different strategies. But the point being, have a strategy, right? If you instead just say, look, I know I need to do some writing. It's important. And I'm just going to wait till I feel like it and have some free time and I'm in the mood to do it and then I'll get it done. It's not going to happen. How do you learn what that style is that works for you? Do you just recommend people try different things out? They have this. What I found working with authors is there's three different styles of the ways I would say people like to create their deep work, we'll call it. The first one is the habit writers, people every day or every week, whatever it is, they block off regular routine time. And that tends to be about 30 to 35% of the authors and the podcasters I work with have that kind of habit structure to it. The next step is what I call the next type is what I call the episodics. And those are people that it's hard for them to pin out the exact time, but when they do it, they're going to go for it deep. So I'm more of an episodic person. I typically try and leave my late evenings open. And when I get in the flow, it's nine o'clock at night. I might go till 2 a.m. just because that's the way my flow works. 
So that idea is about another third. And the last third is what we call deadline writers, deadline creators, where they are driven by deadlines. And when a deadline comes up, that's when they sort of lock down their brain turns it that way. So how do you find people find their style? Is it just trial and error or is there something more to it? I think there's definitely trial and error. There's also some wisdom to be passed down. Like, for example, I don't recommend the deadline approach because it's very common, but it almost always produces some worse outcomes. Says the professor. I see what you're doing here. I see what's okay. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. just to give, let's give some insider baseball in like the writer world. Let's, let's think about, let's think about professional nonfiction writers, but especially maybe in the space of people who are not full-time writers. So like in the advice space, people who do other things, but also write books versus let's say really like award caliber writers. The big distinction, a lot of the, a lot of the writers that aren't producing the really good writing do the thing where they wait till it's near the deadline. And then you see them on Twitter. Oh my God, I had to drop everything and I'm writing 10,000 words a day. And I'm just going to, I have to get this book done and I crank it out. And it's the hardest thing I've ever done. As soon as you hear a writer say this was the hardest thing I've ever done, they're not a professional. Mm. Because the professional writers, they meter it out and it's very regular. And the reason they meter out is very regular is that the total amount of high quality focus that gets applied to the book is significantly higher. Mm. It's why like when I'm working on a book, I typically will spend about one month per chapter. They got a whole month just thinking about that chapter, reading, writing, editing, reading, writing, and that gets a really good chapter written. Whereas if I was doing the deadline game, that chapter might have to get forced out in six days. And it's just going to be, it's it's, it's just going to be worse. In terms of the different metered approaches, you you do have to experiment. Typically, I think people have a good sense of what works for them. There's the night owls, there's the morning owls, there's the, I want the regular schedule. And then there's people like me, for example, who there's enough variability in my schedule that it just never works to say, this time, this day, always. Like, it just doesn't work because it'll last about two weeks until it's like, well, except for tomorrow because I have to go to a parent-teacher conference or whatever. <laughs> uh, I schedule mine typically on the weekly scale. Looking at this week, where am I going to schedule my writing? So there's a lot of different philosophies. You see what makes sense. Expose yourself to a lot of different ways that people do it. Then try it out. And I think the key thing is if it's not working, it's okay to try something else. There is no magic right or wrong way. But once you have something to work, you should stick with it. In the last part of our conversation, we're going to dive into this question of pursuing your passion, or really what even that means. And oftentimes when someone dives into something like a book that they're doing for the very first time, they're going to have doubts and questions. Is this the right thing? Am I on the right path? And what's important to understand is Cal really shares is that you don't exactly know what your passion is until you work at it and chip at it and move away towards it. And so it's one of those things that this idea of finding and pursuing our passion seems so daunting when the reality is it's just a way to apply curiosity to something and to figure out where you're going repeatedly and over time. And that's really that thing that helps you succeed is to know that nothing is permanent. It's flexible. And it's a, dis- a decision you will find that'll help get you where you want to go. All right. So just, it's funny how some ways, and, and you and I talked about this before, a lot of these things are really just about basically having, taking ownership and having control for whatever it is. And, and to this point, again, we set the end goal here, which is you want to do something that's minimal. You want to achieve great things. This is what you're going to have to do. And then the first step of it is, okay, be intentional about what technology you have and be intentional about your time. Now I want to talk about the last part here, which is like, how do you talk about this idea of achievement? How do you think about people who are younger, their twenties and thirties, sort of setting out what they want to achieve and doing things differently. Because I think a lot of it, we see this a lot, both of us being at Georgetown, there's this sort of almost rat race at time where people are keeping up with the, I got this job at this place, whatever. How do you see achievement differently today, particularly in the world that we're living in growing up with today's 20 and 30 something? I wrote this book. One thing that might be relevant is this book I wrote back in 2012, So Good They Can't Ignore You, where I was, I was looking into this question of how do people end up loving their work? 
And the first thing that came up in my research is that by far the most common piece of advice is follow your passion. The second thing that came up in my research is that is advice that's almost certainly going to reduce the probability that you end up passionate about your family. <laughs> yep, yep. That is true. So this is something that I used to speak quite a bit about. What I discovered is that we hear this advice often, especially from successful people who really love what they do. They'll say, yeah, you should follow your passion. But what they really mean is you should follow the goal. Like you should subscribe to the goal of ending up passionate about your work because it's great to be passionate about your work. It's much better to be passionate about your work than to be doing something that you're not. And this is almost <laughs> self-evidently true. And people who experience it really want to emphasize that point, the people who are just coming up. But the way they say it is follow your passion. Now, they sound like they're the same, but they're not. The problem with saying follow your passion versus follow passion as a goal is that follow your passion assumes that you're A, wired for some sort of intrinsic inclination towards a particular career path. And that the key to your success is just matching your job to this passion that already exists. We talk about passion like an intrinsic attribute, like your height or hair color. Obviously, you have a passion. So the only question is, do you follow it? Do you not? Is it a practical passion if it's not? And what's clear in my research is that it's way more complicated. Most people don't come with some pre-wired, this is your quote-unquote passion, what do you do about it? Secondly, we don't have a lot of evidence that says that matching your work to something you're interested in as a topic is likely to lead you to be satisfied or find meaning in your work. Like we have a lot of research on what makes people satisfied and feel a sense of meaning in their work, and it has very little to do with matching the pre-existing interests. And so telling someone to just, oh, you have a passion, just follow it, that's the formula. It's like the Disney movie version of what's really a much more complex, like Scorsese-style movie. <laughs> it's much more layered and nuanced and interesting how people end up passionate about their work. And so uh, being willing to adopt a more complex understanding of workplace satisfaction, I think it is a great first step for someone who's just starting out. Yeah. Start from the right understanding of the landscape before you boldly go marching out into it. It's a good goal. It's not a good, the advice is not very good of how you do that. And I, I talk, oftentimes describe it this way is it's, it's about applied curiosity. Take what those interests you have are and do things that help you scratch it and find it and those sorts of things. And I think that in some ways uh, for my sort of findings and my research is these sort of meaningful, bigger things that are going to take you six to 12 months is really where a lot of that happens. And so do you see those sorts of things of taking bigger sort of challenging things that you don't know exactly if it's where you should be headed, but if you're curious about it and you can apply something towards it is what sort of seems to work for people. So a couple things that seem to be true. One is passion is definitely something that grows, right? It's something that's cultivated as opposed to a force that exists in its entirety in advance and fuels your whole career. And so just wrapping your mind around this notion that your passion for your work is something that you want to develop and intensify over time as opposed to you want to find the passion and then use it to drive you through work. So that's one thing. Another thing that seems to be true is that the things that make people really love their job are often rare and valuable. They're things people really want in their jobs. And so the right way to think about it is you have to be able to do something rare and valuable in order to have enough leverage to get those things in your career. So this is why I introduced this metaphor of career capital, that as you build rare and valuable skills, you can invest that capital into traits like autonomy and impact and creativity and connection that makes people really love their work. So if you want something great in your job, you first have to ask, what can I do greatly 
in order to exchange for those great attributes. Don't I'll just give them to you. And then that brings us back to what you're saying, which is, yes, actually a good way to start acquiring that career capital is to do hard, interesting things to get better as you do them. And using your interests, your pre-existing skills, your background as a starting point for identifying those projects, I think makes all the sense in the world. What is different about this philosophy than saying follow your passion is that it really lowers the threshold. Right. So instead of saying that there's one thing you're meant to do, and if you missed it, you're in trouble. <laughs> right. Look, I've been looking at your DNA and you're meant to be whatever, a social media brand manager for a mid-market, mid-city sports publication. If you miss that goal, you're going to be unhappy. It lowers the bar from the one true passion model to saying, no, what matters is career capital. So choose one of the things you're interested in, something maybe you've got started on, something you already have some skills in. Great. That's a great starting place. Uh, there might be five or six things that pass that test. That's fine. Choose one of them. It's not going to better than anything else to use your interest and skills to help you get started. But don't think that that's all that matters. Next comes the hard work, which is start to do things, finish things, learn things, build skills based on what you discover, pivot, pick the next project, do that, build more skills, get better, learn more about the world, pick your next pop project. Your passion will start to grow because, A, as you get better, you're going to like your work more. But more importantly, you're going to gain more control of your career. You're going to gain more information about the world of work. You're going to put those things together to steer yourself towards increasingly meaningful and satisfying waters. You're going to look up 15, 20 years later. You're going to love what you're going to do. Then you're going to turn around and confusingly tell kids coming up behind you, yeah, all your passion. <laughs> 